Take out your worship guide and we'll jump right into our study today in Mark chapter number, end of chapter two, beginning of chapter number three. The title of the message this morning is Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of the Sabbath. And if you look at Mark 2, verse 28, that verse, Mark 2, verse 28, is really the central uh, core verse of this whole passage we're about to study. And the whole encounter that Jesus had around the things that he would do on the Sabbath day, which upset the religious people at that time very, very much. And so, um, as I mentioned last week, when we looked at last week's message, and if you missed last week's message, I, I hope and pray that you'll go back and, and uh, listen to that sermon. I think it's very pivotal, not only in understanding the book of Mark and understanding the life of Christ, but really understanding the entire Bible. And thank you so much for the encouraging words last week um, on the message. Uh, Henry, I love you, brother. Thank you so much for that kind note that you sent me last week. That was such a blessing. Sometimes pastors aren't sure if what they're saying is making sense and, and if it's helping the body. And it's just encouraging when, when you do get those, those notes. Not that we look for that praise, the praise of man. I think you understand that. But it is encouraging to know when we've uh, hit the right nerve or fed you well. And so thank you for that encouragement last week. So make sure to go back and listen to that message. One of the thoughts that we shared last week is that the Pharisees' experience with Jesus did not align with their expectations of what they thought God would be like. And you see that throughout the life of Christ. He was always shocking the religious establishment with the things that he was doing, the people that he was hanging around, and the things that he was saying. Those three things, the things that he was doing, the people he was hanging around, and the things that he was saying were just continually leaving the religious elite basically with their mouths gaping open. They were just like, I can't believe he would do that. I can't believe he would be with that person. I can't believe he said that. And, and so Mark, as, as we mentioned at the very beginning of our study here in the book of Mark, Mark loves to capture the reactions to Jesus. And I think that's great because it helps us to then evaluate what's our reaction to Jesus. If he was to walk through those doors right now, first of all, would we recognize him? Second of all, would we listen to what he has to say? And, and third of all, would we adore him or would we rather do what the Pharisees are going to start conspiring to do today from this time forward? Would we seek to destroy him? And so the Pharisees clearly didn't expect God to be like who they saw in Jesus. And so because of that, the Sabbath day observance there, if you look at your handout there in the introduction, the Sabbath day observance was cherished by the Jewish people as a sacred institution. Now their Sabbath was from Friday at 6 p.m. to Saturday at 6 p.m. That's how they observed their Sabbath. In fact, a day for them started at 6 p.m., not at 12 a.m. like our calendars and clocks work. For the Jew, a new day started at 6 p.m. And so from 6 p.m. Friday to 6 p.m. Saturday was their Sabbath. And so this Sabbath day observance was cherished by the Jewish people as a very sacred, holy institution. God gave the people of Israel the Sabbath day after they came out of Egypt. If you look up on the screen at Exodus 20, verses 8 and 9, God told them in one of the commands to remember, I think this is the fourth command, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but on the seventh you shall rest. And so this was a command given to God after they came out of the Exodus. He gave to them a day of rest. Now this was, that was interesting because God knew his people needed physical rest. I mean, they had been working nonstop in Egypt for 400 years. 
And that's what happens when you're a slave to your own sin. You're a slave under bondage. When you come out, you're like, wow, God's going to give me a day of rest. And so he really gave the Sabbath to the nation of Israel, not because he needed it, but because they needed it. They needed this, this physical rest that they could enjoy. And it was, of course, a picture of the rest that they would enjoy in the promised land that he was leading them to. And this was also a special sign. This Sabbath observance was a special sign between Israel and God. Look at Exodus 31, 13. Speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbaths shall ye keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that ye may know that I am the Lord that does sanctify or set you apart. And so this Sabbath day was given to the nation of Israel as a sign that, that these people were specially called out and chosen. Why? Because it would be through the nation of Israel that the Messiah would come forth, that ultimately the Lord of the Sabbath would come forth. And that's what we're going to study today. And so here in Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28 and verses 1 through 6, we, we begin to see um, the Sabbath campaign that Jesus goes upon. He, he begins a controversial Sabbath campaign by healing um, this man with a withered hand. Also, his disciples were gleaning uh, uh, barley in the fields. And then also there's another story that really ties in with these two here in Mark. Uh, there's another story that happens before these two, if you put all the chronologies together with the life of Christ. John chapter number five, there's another story that we're going to look at today of him healing another person on the Sabbath. So there's three Sabbath encounters or Sabbath incidences that happen that Jesus is going to be confronted about by the Pharisees, by the, religious, by the religious establishment. And it was these three Sabbath encounters that were what you would call the last straw for the Pharisees. Um, Mark doesn't waste any time, does he? I mean, right away, Mark gets into the story about the life of Christ, and he lays out all of these encounters that Jesus has with the Pharisees. And this encounter about the Sabbath day would be the one that breaks the camel's back, in a sense, that from these encounters forward, the Pharisees were plotting to destroy Jesus. They were plotting to kill him. You can look at that down in Mark 3, verse 6. We'll get there eventually. And so we see in our study today the danger of a legalistic spirit and how a ritualistic rules-based mindset both angers and grieves the heart of God. And we're going to talk about why that is. Why does a ritualistic rules-based mindset, why does it both anger and grieve the heart of God? We actually see that Mark records this. He says down in verse 5 of Mark 3 that this angered and grieved Jesus because of the hardness of their hearts. And so with that said, let's read Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 3, verse 6. It says, uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 23, And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields, excuse me, not barley, cornfields, on the Sabbath day. And his disciples began, as they were, to pluck ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto them, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And he said unto them, Have you never read... Now, I'm sure that that probably upset the Pharisees. Jesus would say this on more than one occasion. He would basically uh, uh, ask them, have you not read the scriptures? And that had to offend them because they're like, well, who do you think you are, Jesus? Of course we've read the scriptures. But of course, you can read something and not really understand what you're reading. 
But he did this over and over in his encounters with the Pharisee. Have you never read what David did? That when he had need, you might want to underline those four words. When he had need, that's going to come back as a theme of our study today. When he had need and was hungered, he and they that were with him, how he went into the temple, the house of God, in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and did eat the, the showbread, the actual bread that was used in the worship there, the, the table of presence, the table of showbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests only. The priests could only eat the showbread, the, uh, the uh, uh, showbread that was on the table of showbread, and they could only eat it after it was a week old. It was used for worship. And only the priests could. But yet David, when he was hungered with his men, went into the house of God and ate the showbread and gave also to them which were with him. And he said unto them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. And we'll come back to that. So that's one Sabbath occurrence He's already had another Sabbath occurrence we're going to look at here in a second in John 5. But then look at Mark 3, verses 1 through 6. And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand, a shriveled up, withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day. Don't you love those secret spies that are always watching you to see when you're going to slip up and break one of their rituals that they've set up? <gasps> Yeah, they were constantly spying on Jesus. If, if, if they had had Facebook back in that day, they would have been spying out everything that Jesus posted on Facebook. And then they would have been whispering about it. Can you believe he said that? Can you believe he did that? Can you believe he went there? I'm sure that doesn't happen today with any Christians, right? Certainly nobody here. Um, and, so, uh, and, and so they were watching him to see what he would do on the Sabbath day, to see if he would heal on the Sabbath day that they might accuse him. And he saith unto the man, which had the withered hand, stand forth. And he said unto them, he poses another question. I love how Jesus deals with his encounters with those that are in opposition. He says, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Now, this encounter really ties back in to the previous encounter. Most scholars believe that these three Sabbath uh, incidences happen on three separate Sabbath days. But it's interesting how this one ties back into what we've just read in Mark 2, 23 through 28. Notice that the question is, is, is it lawful to do good? Meaning to meet someone's legitimate need on the Sabbath. Is it, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? To save or to kill. But they held their peace. And there's a lot of debate on why they did. One scholar says that they did because they knew that if they answered in one way, it was, it was kind of a catch-22, you know, how, how you answered. But ultimately, I think they held their peace because they just had a cold, dead heart. And they basically just stone, stonewalled Jesus and just didn't even bother to answer. And when he had looked around about on them, verse 5, with anger being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. Again, there's no rehab process with Jesus' healings. Amen. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians, Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. 
Father, bless in this study today as we see that you are the Lord of the Sabbath. May this bring clarity to our understanding as believers. And Father, may this bring freedom and rest for those that have never found freedom in your finished work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of thoughts as we look at this passage of study to gain a better understanding of it so that we can apply it and understand and appreciate it. Number one, we want to see the context. I've already kind of gotten into that a little bit, trying to share with you the context of when Mark chapter 2 verses 23 through 3 verse 6 occurs. There's another story that I've been referencing that happens over in John chapter 5. So if you want to turn there, you can. It might be good to mark this area of your Bible and kind of tie it into this passage because the story in John chapter number 5 happens just before these two incidences. So um, and, and so before we look here at what happens in Mark, I want us to go back to John chapter 5 for just a few minutes. Um, because Jesus would, at some point in his Galilean ministry, he was up around the Sea of Galilee, but he, like any good Jew, would go up to Jerusalem at least three times a year because there were three pilgrim feasts where every Jewish male had to go up to Jerusalem to the temple. And when we say up to Jerusalem, if you look at a map, actually Galilee is north. So why would they say up? It's because of the geography, it's because of, the geography of the Holy Land. And many of you have had the chance to go with me to the Holy Land. I hope to take another trip in the not too distant future over there with you. Of course, that's, that's all uh, barring if planes are still flying, I guess a year from now or two. But anyway, it's, a, it's an incredible topography. And Jerusalem is up in the mountains. So when you read all these stories and you're like, but wait a second, Galilee's north of Jerusalem. Why do they say up all the time? It's because Jerusalem was in the mountains. It was in the hills. I will lift up mine eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. And so that's where David was, was writing that is there in the city of Jerusalem and the hills around him. And so just a beautiful picture there. And so Jesus would go up to Jerusalem at least three times a year. Now, most scholars believe that he left Galilee at this time to go up for the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is one of the three pilgrim feasts where they had to go up to the temple to worship. And it's while he is there for the Feast of Tabernacles that we see this story, this encounter happen. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and, the, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue, Bethesda, having five porches. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity 38 years, 38 years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, will you be made whole? Now, what a question, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know how that man responded. Maybe he's like, duh, you know, yeah, I want to be made whole. I've been laying here for 38 years. I'd love to be made whole. Now, this is an interesting story as you study it because there is this pool and, 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 and the belief was is that when the waters were stirred, this, this angel came down and stirred the waters and whoever got to the pool first after that happened, they got healed. And so for 38 years, this guy has been trying to win the luck of the draw and be there close enough to the pool that when this stirring happens, he's able to get in there and he's able to get healed. And so the impotent man said, sir, I have no man, but when the water's troubled to put me in the pool, but while I'm coming, another steppeth down before me. He'd always been last. He'd always been on the short end of the stick and he had nobody to help him. How sad. I mean, don't you think there were maybe some Pharisees around this pool? This was a pool that was close to the temple. 
Don't you think that there was maybe some religious people who sooner or later would have seen this man for, after 38 years sometime during that would have brought him down to the pool? If you keep reading verses 8 and 9, it says, Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed. Again, no rehab period for the people that Jesus healed. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was, uh-oh, there it is, dun-dun-dun, the Sabbath. And now you know what's going to happen, verse 10. Then the Jews, therefore, said unto him that was cured. You know, the guy who had been laying there for 38 years, the guy who was all shriveled up. I mean, mean, if you haven't been using your muscles for 38 years, he was probably skin and bones. But, of course, now Jesus has healed and restored his body. He's carrying his bed. And, of course, the Jews, therefore, said unto him that was cured, it is the Sabbath day. Dun, dun, dun. It's not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. No, 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 no. It wasn't not lawful. They had just created hundreds of rules in and around the Sabbath day so that they wouldn't break the Sabbath. They created all these extra biblical rules, and that's what he was not following. And so they aren't astonished that this man is healed. You would think a man who's been laying there for 38 years, the first thing they would say is, I can't believe it. You're healed. Who did this? No, the only reason they want to know who did it is so that they can go and find out who did it because he's breaking one of their rules. Again, notice the theme. A man who had a genuine need for 38 years, Jesus meets his need, and all that these people care about is who told you to carry your bed on the Sabbath. So with that in mind, now we go back to our passage because this has happened probably a week before the story we're reading now. He had been in Jerusalem. Now he goes back to Galilee after the feast. And on two more Sabbath days, we have these encounters, both the disciples and him gleaning ears of corn in a field, which was totally legal, by the way. It was a part of their welfare system. If you were walking through the fields and you didn't have anything to eat that day, you could take off of the stalks what you could eat. Of course, you couldn't carry any with you out of the field, but you could eat while you're walking through those fields. It was totally permissible um, according to the Old Testament law. And so we see this Sabbath, the Sabbath day tradition that had been built around the Sabbath, all these extra biblical rules. In fact, I've got so many here that they created. Just listen to a very brief summary um, of a lot of the Sabbath rules that they had. For example, on the Sabbath, they created an extra rule that you couldn't travel more than 3,000 feet. Um, Some say that you couldn't even go more than 1,999 steps. If you took the 2,000th step, you violated the Sabbath. Now, this would be from Friday when the sun goes down till Saturday, as we mentioned. The only way that you could go further than that is if you were to put some food 1,999 steps away on Friday before the Sabbath started. And then once you got to the food, you could take another 1,999 steps. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, what you don't want to do is you do not want to get on the Sabbath elevator on a Saturday. Because on that day, it's against their rules to press a button. They consider that work. And so if you get on a Sabbath elevator on a Saturday at Israel, guess what you're doing? You're going and stopping on every single floor. Guess who did that one time? And y'all know that I have such the gift of patience. I can wait so easily for things in my life. And I got on that crazy Sabbath elevator and I had to ding, ding. I mean, how many of you get upset when somebody presses just one button wrong, you know? And I'm like, ding. I'm just like, hallelujah, 
you know, 15 minutes later, I get up to my floor. Anyway, so they have all kinds of rules like this. And they had come up with all kinds of loopholes around the rules. And, and so does this sound familiar, you know? I mean, so many times Christians come up with the same thing. You know, they see laws like, um, like uh, modesty, and then they create hundreds of rules around that. You know, your skirt's got to be so long. It can't, it can't be fingertip, or, or, uh, or you have to wear a certain outfit on a Sunday, or you, or you have to, uh, you know, there's all kinds of rules like this. Uh, rules about where you can go and where you can't go. Where, where, can you go to the movie theater? Can you not? You know, back in the day, it was, should you have facial hair? Should you not? That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah. It's amazing how much Jewishness gets brought in to so many well-meaning Christian circles even today. Um, A person who was a seamstress couldn't carry his needle on the Sabbath day. A scribe couldn't carry his pen. A pupil couldn't carry his books. They considered all this work. You couldn't even bathe for fear that the water that's falling off of you might wash the floor. If a candle, yeah, believe it or not, if a candle was lit, you couldn't put it out. If it wasn't lit, you couldn't light it. Chairs couldn't be moved because they might make a rut. Women couldn't look in a glass or they might find a white hair and be tempted to pull it out. (laughs) These were the rules. I mean, hundreds of Sabbatarian rules and systems that have been created. And this is the context of what Jesus walks into when he tells a lame man who's been lame for 38 years, get up and walk and carry your bed. And then when his disciples are plucking uh, ears of corn, you see they were threshing the corn between their hands, you know, getting the corn out of the husk. And, And so the Pharisees considered that work, but yet the disciples were hungry. They had a need, just like the man at the pool of Bethesda had a need. And then we get to really our main story we're focusing on today. But we'll come back to verse 28 because that's kind of central to all three occurrences that are happening here. But we look at verses 1 through 6 of, chapter, of Mark chapter 3, and we see Jesus presented with another man who had a need. A man who had a withered hand. We don't know here how long he had had the withered hand. I'm guessing he had had it for quite some time. Maybe he was born, born with this defect. And he tells the man in verse 3, stand forth. Jesus is about to do something else that's going to ruffle the feathers of the self-righteous and the religious. And so he poses, number two, this question. So we look at the context of what's about to happen. And then we look at the question that Jesus poses to these men. Wouldn't you agree, as you study the book of Mark and other gospels, Jesus was the master questioner. He knew just the right questions to get to the core issue of man's heart. Why could he do this? Well, one reason is is because he understood man's heart. It says over in Mark chapter number two, flip back there, verses eight and nine, it says immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, why reason ye these things in your heart? So Jesus being who he was, the son of God, he could, he could, he could see what was in man's heart. And so he had a way of asking just the right questions to get at the heart issue that was being faced. And so he poses this question. He says, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil, to save life or to kill? So Jesus' question has a powerful foundation to it. What is he basically asking here? And as I 
tried to study this out, this is what I came up with. Here's what he's basically asking. He's basically asking this. Does the need of a person's soul overrule the adherence to a religious ritual? It's really the key question, isn't it? In all three stories, whether it was the lame man at the pool of Bethesda that he healed on the Sabbath or threshing corn between the hands as the disciples were hungry on the Sabbath or about to what he was going to do, heal this man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. He's basically posing the question, does the need of a person's soul overrule the adherence to your religious ritual? Especially, and this is the masterfulness of Jesus, because if you really look into this question, what he's doing is, is he's hearkening them back to the very reason God ever made the Sabbath to begin with. Why did God institute the Sabbath when the nation of Israel came out of the land of Egypt? Because they had been working their tails off for 400 years. They were worn out. They needed this system of rest in their life. And so the original ritual, the original law of the Sabbath was actually established for the physical need of man to rest. Now, there were other spiritual significances tied into it. Yes, they would worship God on the Sabbath, and, and, and all the nations of the world would look around and, and see their special observance of this day as a holy day to the Lord. And so that would, again, be in some ways a testimony to the heathen around them that they were believers in God. But primarily it was given for man to rest because man needed that rest. Now, what's interesting is, is God also rested on the seventh day of creation. What's interesting there is God didn't need to rest because he was tired. He rested for a different reason. Ooh, well, we'll get there. Don't worry, we'll get there eventually. He rested for a different reason. He didn't have to rest because he was tired. He rested for a different reason and we'll get there in a moment. But in this question that Jesus asked, He's pointing to the obvious reality that these self-righteous individuals had lost sight of a true relationship with God. Basically, he's saying in this question, what good is your ritual if it blinds you to the need of the individual? What good is your ritual if it blinds you to the need of the individual? right in front of you. Man who was lame 38 years, hungry disciples gleaning corn, a man with a withered hand, all who had legitimate need. And notice that when Jesus asked this question, they understood what he was asking. They understood the incredible wisdom of his question because they held their peace. <laughs> They held their peace, probably for a lot of reasons. One, I would just say, is they held their peace because of their cold indifference. We see this throughout the life of Jesus in his encounters with the Pharisees. It's like, it's, it's as if they don't even care. They didn't care about the man 38 years lame. All they cared about was he was breaking their little rule that they had created, you know, because they didn't want to actually break the Sabbath. So they created all these extra fences and all these extra boundaries. So they wouldn't get over here. And that all sounds wise, but you know what all that is? That's all flesh. And so they had cold indifference. They just were silent, which then leads to the confrontation. The confrontation we see in verse 5. 
So when he had looked round about on them, can you imagine that look? The look of Jesus. It looks, it says here that he looked around about on them with anger, but also being grieved. Wow. Wow. The coldness of the Pharisee's heart both angered and grieved Jesus. Jesus could see the hardening of their hearts and their sin made him angry. Why did their sin make him angry? Because Jesus knows how sin ruins relationship. And it makes us calloused and shriveled to the needs of others. It's interesting, as you study the life of Jesus, you will never find where he got angry at publicans and sinners. Now, we know that God is angry at all of our sin because all of our sin breaks relationships and, bring, and brings brokenness to our, to our world. And so he's angry at sin. He hates sin for the, very much that, for the very fact that he loves us so much. But yet in all the life of Christ that you study, he never gets angry at the publicans and sinners. Who does he get angry at? the Pharisees, the scribes, and the money changers in the temple taking advantage of the poor and the needy. And so Jesus expresses anger here, but also notice how it's mixed with grief. It's both. He's angry at this terribleness of sin, the blindness, the hardness of their heart, and he's also grieved at the same time. He's grieved because he realizes that that they're going to miss the whole reason why he came. The whole reason. But what we see here is that the self-righteous would rather protect their traditions and rules than to see a man healed. What this man with the shriveled hand really points us to is that this man with the shriveled hand was a metaphor of the Pharisee's heart. Shriveled and dead. Cold. They're insecure and anxious about the relations, their, the, the, the uh, regulations. They're, they're tribal, they're judgmental, they're self-obsessed instead of caring about the man. Why? Because of their religion. Because of their rules that they created around the law of God. And so Jesus just looks at them with anger and grief for the hardness of their hearts, and he says unto the man, he turns to the man, stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, as, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And again, you would think that the Pharisees would have been, whoa, how did that happen? But look at verse 6. We see the conspiracy. We've seen the context, we've seen the question, we've seen the confrontation, now we see the conspiracy, verse six. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. At the end of these Sabbath encounters with the religious leaders, Mark records a remarkable sentence that sums up one of the main themes of the New Testament. And that is this plot that the Pharisees begin to concoct 
of how they're going to not just kill. That word destroy there means to literally, they hated Jesus so much, they wanted to wipe him from the face of the earth from existence. That's the idea of the Greek word behind that word killed there. They want to obliterate him. And here's what's interesting. <laughs> the Pharisees were going to work with the Herodians. Now, we read that and we're like, oh, okay. That was like, that would not happen. The Pharisees and the Herodians didn't like each other. They were enemies. Who were the Herodians? The Herodians were the supporters of King Herod, one of the nastiest, most corrupt kings who had ever ruled Israel. And of course, he was a puppet ruler underneath Roman occupying power in its political system. In any country that the Romans conquered, they set up rulers. And, and wherever the Romans went, they, they brought along their culture of Greek philosophy, their Greek approach to sex and the body, the Greek approach to truth, relativism. And they conquered societies like Israel. And Israel, of course, felt assaulted by this Greek, immoral, cosmopolitan, pagan value system that was being imposed in their, in their towns and in their nation. And in these countries, there were cultural resistance movements. And in Israel, that was the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the moralists. They were the ones trying to fight against the Roman paganism that was coming in. And so the Herodians were like the pagan, you know, the, 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 the pagan idol worshipers. The Pharisees did not like the Herodians in any other context. The Pharisees believed that their society was being overwhelmed with pluralism and, and, and paganism and, 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 that, and that Rome, with all of its influence, was trying to upend their traditional virtues. And so the Pharisees were continually calling for a return to traditional moral values. And so these two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, had been enemies for a long time. But now they agree. Isn't that interesting? that within this conspiracy, we see something that's being taught. We see that the gospel of Jesus Christ is both, is both an offense to religion and irreligion. It offends both the moralist who is told, it's not by your works of righteousness which you have done, but it's according to his mercy that he saved you. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. So the moralist is offended because they're told that all of their good behavior cannot save them. But also the paganist is also offended because Jesus confronts sin. And he tells the woman who's called adultery, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. So both the Herodians hate Jesus and the moralists hate Jesus. Do you see the double-edged, sharp sword of the gospel? And do you see that how both of those are both flesh, sin, moralism, hedonism? Both the gospel confronts. It offends both the hedonist and the moralist. But as you study the life of Jesus, isn't it interesting? Which group did he seem to offend the most? Which one? The moralists. Those are the ones actually that plot, that hatched the plot to kill Jesus. 
And then they went and got the hedonists to join with them because they knew the hedonists would be happy to do it because they like to kill people anyway. You see? So this conspiracy gets launched because right here, up until this point, the Pharisees were like getting hit left and right with Jesus. You know, Jesus has, has uh, healed the lame man in, in chapter two, the guy who was lowered down through the, uh, the, through the um, um, roof. He, he had, he had um, uh, uh, set a demon, uh, a, a man possessed of a demon free in a synagogue over in chapter one. Um, he, had, he had eaten with Levi there at his house and had to deal with questions there. And now it's the Sabbath, and ooh, Jesus wasn't going to play by their man-made traditions and rules on the Sabbath. And that, my friends, is what launched the conspiracy to kill the Savior. They, they conspired, took counsel with the Herodians, how they might destroy them. And so we see all this in this story. We see the context of it. Hopefully we understand better that, that these just weren't happening. I mean, this was really anti-cultural to what the whole Jewish religion was about that Jesus was doing. Um, we see the question that Jesus puts forth to try to help them to see that this Sabbath law was never made uh, to be oppressive to man, but to be refreshing to man, to give them an actual physical day of rest. We see the confrontation we see the conspiracy, but finally we end with this question, and it's the question that really we should always come to when we're studying this issue of the Sabbath, and that is this question, do you need rest? I shared with you earlier how verse 28 really is the core, the spine of all three of these Sabbath day incidences. It says, therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. And again, the title Son of Man is actually a title of his deity. It's hearkening back to Daniel chapter 7, the Ancient of Days. And Jesus says that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. As I mentioned to you earlier, at the end of Genesis chapter number 1, where the account of God's creation is given to us of the world, it is said that God rested from his work. But what does that mean? Did God get tired no, God doesn't get tired. So how, how could he rest? He didn't need physical rest. There was a different reason to rest. And the different reason to rest is there's another reason that you can rest. It's when you get to the end of your work and you're so satisfied with your work, you're so utterly satisfied that you can leave it alone because you know it's done, it's finished. Only when you can say about your work, I'm so happy with it, so satisfied, it is finished, can you walk away. And so when God finished creating the world, he said, it's finished, he rested. Most of us, we work our whole lives trying to prove ourselves to convince God and other people and ourselves that we're okay people. You know, we're pretty good. But that work is never over unless we find our rest in the gospel. You see, the kind of rest we're asking the question about today is not physical rest. We're talking about spiritual rest. And that was the whole original reason for the Sabbath day anyway. 
The Sabbath day was never meant to be this perpetual one-day-a-week system. The Sabbath was going to fade away. In fact, hold in your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter number 2. I want you to see the temporary nature of this Sabbath day observance. Colossians chapter number 2. Colossians chapter number 2. Look at verses 16 and 17 for just a moment. So important. This wasn't in the notes, but write this down. Read it. It says in verse, um, uh, let's see. Yeah, verse 16, Colossians 2. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. But the body, the reality is Christ. What is Paul saying there about the Sabbath? That the Sabbath was just a shadow. It was a rough outline of a greater reality. And what's the greater reality? Well, Paul wrote about it, all the, all the books that he wrote about in the New Testament. The greater reality is the Sabbath of eternal rest in your soul that only Jesus can bring. And so for us today as New Covenant, New Testament believers, we're not to get hung up on what you can drink and what you can eat and what day you happen to not work. I mean, for most Americans, they don't work two days out of the week. They have a full weekend, 48 hours. So the point is, it's not about physical rest. There's something else going on. And God was always trying to point the nation of Israel and really the world to the Lord of. And it's so important how Mark puts that. Jesus didn't say, I'm Lord over the Sabbath. What does that mean? It means Jesus didn't pull rank. It's not like he said, well, I'm Lord over the Sabbath. I've got the authority and, and I can break the Sabbath law because it doesn't pertain to me. I've got authority. You know, I can make the rules, but I don't have to follow them. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. What does he mean? He's literally saying that the Sabbath is his identity that in him there is eternal rest from your efforts to justify yourself before God because you can't do it. And so God said at the end of creation, it is finished, it is done. And on the cross, Jesus was saying of the work underneath your work, he was talking about all that work that we do, that we try to do to prove ourselves that we're good enough he says there on the cross, he says, all of that you're trying to do, all the sins that you're trying to atone for on your own, to try to cover up and clean up, it's finished. He finished the work of creation. He finished the work of redemption. And through that, Jesus says that the work is finished. God is now satisfied with you because he's satisfied with his son. And in Christ, you are a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Jesus literally says here that he is the Sabbath. He is the source of the deep rest we need. He has come to completely change the way that we, the way that we rest. This one day a week rest was just a taste of the deep divine spiritual rest we needed. And Jesus is the source. He is Lord of the Sabbath. And so because of that, there's freedom. Yeah, you don't have to follow all those man-made traditions that somehow got added over the hundreds of years because that's exactly what the Pharisees had done with God's law. And Jesus says these words. He says, come unto me, 
all you who are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest. For your body? No, see, he's Lord of the Sabbath. So that means he gives us something greater. Y'all know what I'm talking about. How many of us have ever had a day of rest? And we have rested physically, but we started our week still feeling drained. Mentally, emotionally, psychologically. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, offers something greater. Soul rest. How can he offer that? Because as Tim Keller put it in his great book on the Gospel of Mark, on the cross, Jesus experienced the restlessness of separation from God so that we can have the deep rest of knowing that he loves us and our sins have been forgiven. This is the rest that he offers. Sadly, there were Pharisees who'd observed Sabbaths for years and they didn't get it. They couldn't see past their ritual to see the need of the individual, but more importantly, they couldn't look past all their ritual to see the need of their own heart. Rest for their souls. And this is what Jesus was trying to help them to see if they would only see it. Have you found rest for your soul? Let's pray.